Uh, You can open your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 2. We started a few weeks ago, Journey Through the Psalms, and we're just taking uh, them one at a time. So we know we've got at least 150 chapters, or 150 weeks of material. Uh, If we're taking a psalm a week, there's 150 chapters in Psalms, and so we're working our way through it. And we'll take little breaks occasionally, but we're going to just kind of work our way through Psalms. And you say, that might get kind of redundant. Uh, It won't, trust me. These psalms cover so many different areas and have different emphases and uh, different uh, uh, focuses. And so uh, I I think you'll stay engaged throughout the entire study. And we've made it to the second psalm. The second psalm is a wonderful psalm. Uh, this psalm and Psalm 110 are the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. So when you read the New Testament, we'll look at some of these tonight, you'll see how this psalm is quoted and alluded to. And so there is much in this psalm that we need to get to. Uh, I want to pray for us tonight, and then we're going to jump right in and just we're going to ask God to bless our study together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We're grateful, Lord, for your word, truth with no mixture of error. We're thankful, Lord, for the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of your word so that we can learn truth and we can take that truth and apply it to our lives. We're grateful tonight for resurrection power that resides in us through our, through our union with Christ. Because of your power in our life, we can say yes to you and no to sin and be transformed. And we're just grateful, Lord, for the freedom Uh, Not just the forgiveness uh, of sin, but the freedom from sin that you offer us in your Son. And so I pray, God, that that tonight you would uh, just do a mighty work in our lives. That you would use this psalm uh, to encourage us, to bless us, to challenge us, to conform us further into the image of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray tonight. Amen. All right, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. We won't do this every night, but I want to read the entire psalm at one time because it's only 12 verses. Some of the psalms are longer, so we won't read them all at once. But I want to just read the entire thing because there's a, there's a, a dynamic when you capture the whole thing at one time that I want you to see. But before I read it, uh, and this is in your notes, I want to just remind you of what the book of Psalms is all about. There's a summary here. It comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. Here's how he sums up what the psalms are. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, personal or community life. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion, in personal or community life. That's kind of a a great summary of the Psalms, and that indeed summarizes Psalm chapter 2. Now, just a quick word before I read. Psalm chapter 2 is a messianic psalm. In other words, it's about Jesus specifically. So you'll see that as we work our way through, and I want you to be thinking about that as we read Psalm chapter 2 together. So here we go. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. It's written by David. You say, wait, how do you know that? Well, because the New Testament tells us in Acts 4 that it was written by David. And I'll show you that a little bit later. But look what it says there, chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, the speaker changes here, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now notice it closes with blessing. Uh, Some scholars believe that the first two psalms are a package deal. They were put together at the beginning of the Psalter because of the focus on blessing. If you look back in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it starts off, Blessed is the man. And the last verse in chapter 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So uh, a lot of people believe these are meant to go uh, together. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Interesting, interesting psalm. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through just a basic outline of this psalm. And basically the outline uh, revolves around the different speakers in this psalm. There's different people doing the talking here, so we're going to walk through that. And then after we walk through the outline and understand what's being said, I want to take some time to draw some application and some implications for our lives. In other words, here's what this psalm ought to mean to us and how we live our lives. So we'll get to some personal stuff a little bit later on. So we're going to have a good time tonight. All right, it's going to be fun. Uh, uh, but we're going to start off by looking at the outline. And the outline is just fourfold. It starts off with this. The world speaks. The world speaks. Uh, the, the entire system of ungodliness, which the Bible calls the world, is personified in these first few verses and, and uh, given speech uh, to kind of uh, summarize the, the thoughts of those who are opposed to the things of God. Look what it says there in verse 1 of chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, so here's what the ungodly say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the first part of this psalm, the world speaks. We get to see the attitude, the, the disposition of those who are opposed to the things of God. So, several things I want you to notice here. First of all, notice the passion with which the world speaks. Notice the passion. Look what it says there in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? That word rage in the Hebrew language is a really interesting word. It means to murmur or even growl a vain thing. It speaks of anger. So, those that are opposed to God and His ways... Are, are angry about God and His ways. They're, they're not um, ambivalent. They are, they are passionate about rejecting God and His, His call over their life or His demands over their life. So there's passion here. Why do the nations rage? The, the nations are not, uh, it's interesting, are not, um, um, are not indifferent to God. The, the world is raging against God. And we see that everywhere we look, right? We see every avenue of society and our culture. We see people that aren't just indifferent to God and the things of God. They are, they are enemies 
of anything that relates to the one true God. They are raging against God. So notice the passion. And then secondly, notice the plan. Look what it says in verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth, the rulers of the nations who set the agenda for those living in this world, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. So there's a plan here. There's a, there's a system of, of, of um, anti, anti-God that is, is, is a reality in our world, and people are plotting together so that they do not uh, respond to the Lord. They keep Him at arm's length. They reject Him. They rebel against Him. There's a systematic plan to rebel against God in the world system. And then notice the purpose. Why is the world rebelling against God? Look what it says in verse 3. It says, These rulers, these kings of the earth, take counsel together against the Lord, against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The world's anger, listen to this, this is an important statement. The world's anger and rebellion against God and His Son are driven by a reluctance to submit. See the language there in verse 3? Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. In other words, we don't want to be bound. We don't want anyone, especially God, telling us what to do or how to live our lives. And so the world, the the system of ungodliness in this this culture is anti-God, rebellious against God because they don't want to submit. And it really boils down to that. People that rebel against God don't want to submit to what God says, to His will and to His way. It's a a rebellious heart. They want to distance themselves from a God that holds people accountable to follow Him exclusively. They do not want to bow their knees to His authority. I was reading an interesting quote today from Charles... Darwin, who, as you know, um, formulated a lot of the thoughts that became known as the evolutionary theory and natural selection and and all of that. And and that that philosophy, I call it a philosophy, not fact, but that philosophy has really integrated um, education at all levels. And and it rules the day in, in higher education and people that don't hold to a naturalistic view of the, the, the universe are ridiculed and scorned and seen as backwoods ignoramuses, all right? I don't know if that's good English, but ignoramuses. So, um, and, and so they're, they're, they're minimized, but uh, Charles Darwin basically made the point. He, he knew that some of his family members were uh, Unitarian. They were uh, liberal, uh, did not hold to the authority of God's Word, did not see the necessity of being born again in Christ. And so he knew that according to the Bible these family members were lost. That if, if, if we were going by God's word, these family members would not make it to heaven because they were not followers of Christ. They went to a Unitarian church, but they were far, far from God because they rejected God's word. And he made the same. I thought it was interesting. He said, he said uh, I, I just can't believe something that, that if I believe it, it's going to mean that my loved ones are damned to hell. I just can't believe that. And so really, Charles Darwin's issue was this accountability to a holy God. That was his issue. And, and, and it, 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 it plays out in a lot of his writings, and I could go more into that. But, but the purpose of the world's rebellion is to stay away from God so they don't have to submit to his will and to his way. It, it boils down to this. Our world is full of folks 
Uh, our families are full of folks. Our workplaces are full of folks. Our schools are full of folks. Our communities are full of folks that do not want to bow their knees to Jesus. That's what it boils down to. And because they don't want to bow their knee, they rebel against God. They rage against God. They plot against God. They don't want to bow the knee. That's what it boils down to. And so we, we notice that as the world speaks like how Charles Spurgeon sums it up in the way that only he can. He writes, We have in these th- first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. We have in these first three verses a description of the hatred of human nature against the Christ of God. And I can spend a lot of time tonight showing you all the instances in our society of people that are anti-God, uh, ungodly, rebelling against God, but that would just depress us all. So I'm going to spend a lot of time... I mean, you, you, know, you know that there's a lot of folks out there that don't want to bow their knee to Jesus, right? You don't have to look far to see that. And so the world speaks. That's the condition of, of, of our world. People that do not want to bow their knee to the authority of God over their life. But then in this psalm, it's interesting because it shifts, and God, the Father, speaks. He has something to say about all of this, and it's fascinating to see what God has to say. Look there in verse 4. The Bible says, He who sits in the heavens, the nations are raging, plotting against Him. They want to rebel against God. They want to stop the, the work of God in the world. And it says there, He who sits in the heavens, what? Laughs. Is God threatened by rebellious people? Is, is God threatened by kings that hate Him? Is God threatened by rulers that hate Him? Is God threatened by university professors that hate Him? Is God threatened by anyone that hates Him? No. It says, He laughs. The Lord holds them in. Is God threatened by any politician that hates Him? No. It says, The Lord holds them in. I've made a pact with myself. I'm not going to talk about politics tonight. I just don't even want to go there. So, the Lord... Okay, I got some thoughts, but we're not going there tonight. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, here's what God the Father says, as for me, now look how he sums it up, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, I want you to notice a couple things here. Number one, notice the position of God. It says there, I love it, he who sits in the heavens... So God's not standing up, looking down on the rebellious of this earth, the kings and the, and the rulers that are rebelling against him. He's not wringing his hands saying, what am I going to do? There's no emergency meeting of the Trinity in heaven, is there? God's sitting down. Where is he sitting? He's sitting on his throne, right? Why is he sitting on his throne? Because he's calling the shots. He's in control. He is sovereign over the universe. He is almighty. So notice his position. He's sitting on his throne. It is laughable to think that our great and mighty God is threatened by the ungodliness of humanity. He is not threatened at all. Things that make us wring our hands and, you know, Supreme Court and, and you know, Congress and, and, and presidents and all this, all this stuff that, that causes us great concern and anxiety... God is not threatened at all, at all, at all. He's the one calling the shots. And as a matter of fact, he's working right now to make sure that all of this, even the ungodly, the actions of the ungodly, he's working to make sure that all of this brings him glory. 
And, and when the dust settles on human history and Jesus comes back to set everything right, guess what? God will be exalted, right? So he's, he's, he laughs. He's sitting on his throne. He's not threatened at all. Notice his position. But then notice the proclamation of God. The proclamation of God. Look what he says in verse 6. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When God the Father says, I've set my king on Zion, who's he talking about? He's talking about his son, right? Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, now listen to this. God has plainly declared to the world that Jesus is the King of kings. God has plainly declared to the world that Jesus is the King of kings. We don't have to wonder where the God of the Bible stands on on the way of salvation or who the one is that gets all the glory. He has crowned his son as the king of kings. Now here's the question. How has God declared to the world that Jesus is the king of kings? Well, number one, in his word. In his word, the Bible is clear. So uh, it's it's an accurate representation of, of God because God spoke it through human instruments, inspired the writings of the Bible. So we have here in our Bibles truth of the no, no mixture of error. And the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about Jesus, about his redemptive work. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus is the one who, who the Lord sent to be a redeemer for mankind. But also he's spoken to us through the Resurrection. Look what it says in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. This is Paul's sermon in Corinth, the Areopagus. I'm sorry, not Corinth, but Athens. Athens at the Areopagus. And look what he says. Uh, in verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, this was a place where philosophers would come and exchange ideas. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You ever wonder why you were born where you were born and why you were raised where you were raised and why you live where you live? Because God has set the boundaries of your life. God's ordained that you be where you are and that you were born where you were and that you grew up where you did. He has a plan in all of that. And it says there, that they, the, the purpose in God placing people in their specific boundaries and dwelling places is so that they should seek Him, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. It is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man." The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because, look at verse 31, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now he's talking here about Jesus. And how do we, how do we know that Jesus is the one we ought to respond to? Well, look what he says next. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection is the evidence that God has given a watching world that Jesus truly is the Son of God sent from heaven to be a redeemer for mankind and ultimately the judge over mankind. The resurrection is proof positive that Jesus was who he said he was, that he could do what he said he could do. So God is plainly, through his word, through the the evidence of the resurrection, has declared to the world that Jesus is the King of kings. So, if you want, if you want to respond to the one true God, if you want to know Him, if you want to experience Him, you have to come to Him through Jesus Christ. Let me say it like this. Jesus is the only way to experience God. Period. He's the only way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And back in Psalm 2, God says, I have set my king on Zion. Speaking of Jesus Christ. So, God the Father speaks. Now, here's the third part of the psalm, back in Psalm 2. The world has spoken, God the Father has spoken, but now God the Son speaks. Look what it says in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Who's doing the talking now? The Son is, right? Jesus is saying to the Father, calling him Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So he's saying that, that, that Jesus here is God's Son, um, begotten of God, not created, but begotten of God, sent from heaven to earth, taking on human flesh. And, and the Son here is speaking. Here's what he says, or here's the gist of what he's saying. God the Father is giving Christ the Son the nations to possess and rule. He says there in verse 8, Ask of me, God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. So God the Father says to God the Son, If you ask, I'll give you the nations. God the Father is giving Christ the Son the nations to possess and to rule. So you say, wait, what's happening in human history right now? What's God up to? So we think about, you know, uh, politics and, you know, ISIS and the... Zika virus or whatever it's called, and all you know, all the, the turmoil and tumult going on in our society. What's God up to? He is working to give the nations to his son. That's what's happening right now. He's using his church to do it. But right now, God the Father is working in this world to give the nations to his son as a possession, for him to rule over and for him to possess as a precious possession. So that's what God is doing in the world. And here's the deal. Everyone will experience Jesus as Savior or Judge. Everyone will experience Jesus as Savior and Judge. Look what it says in verse 9. God the Father speaking to God the Son. You shall break them with a rod of iron, the nations, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vest. In other words, you will rule over them as a king with a rod of iron. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the, of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. In other words, you will experience Him as the one who judges you with a rod of iron, or you will... You will pay homage to him. You'll kiss him. You will come to him in a personal way. So everyone in this world, everyone is in one of two categories. Everyone in this room is in one of two categories. You will either experience Jesus as Savior or you'll experience him as judge. Everyone in this room. I suggest you experience him as Savior because that's awesome. Your sins are forgiven. 
Your life is transformed. You go to heaven when you die. It's awesome when you experience Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. But if you reject Jesus as Savior and Lord, then when the end of all things comes, you will experience Him as judge. And that will be terrifying because your name will not be written in the book of life. And you will be cast into the eternal lake of fire where you will be separated from God forever because you rejected His Son. And so I... I urge you tonight, if, you're, if you don't know where you are in terms of your eternal destiny, if you don't know where, where you are in your relationship with God, I urge you tonight to just get alone with the Lord, maybe in your car on the ride home, or maybe right now at your seat and say, Jesus, I believe you're my only hope. I know I'm a sinner, and I ask you to come into my life and, and be my Lord and Savior. Take control of my life. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. I want to follow you and call on his name right now because you don't want to experience Jesus as judge. You know, the first time he came, he came, you know, humble, born of the Virgin Mary, um, unassuming, you know, riding a donkey into Jerusalem. When he comes back, he's going to be riding a white horse. He's going to come to do war, to do battle, right? That's what Revelation tells us. You don't want to experience him as judge, You want to experience him as Savior. And the good news is, because he loves you, because he died for you, because he rose from the dead, you can experience him as Savior right now. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, right? If you believe in him, trust in his finished work, he will save you. So everyone will experience Jesus as Savior or judge. We see that interaction between Father and Son. But fourth, very quickly, and then I want to get into the implications. We see God the Holy Spirit speak. Look what it says in verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise... Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So the ungodly world speaks. God the Father speaks. God the Son speaks. Now the Holy Spirit speaks. Wait, how do you know the Holy Spirit's speaking? Well, turn to Acts 4 with me. Acts chapter 4. The context here is Peter is released from the Sanhedrin. And he goes back to the church to tell them that he's been warned not to preach about Jesus anymore. So the people begin to pray. Look what they say in Acts 4, verse 24. When they heard it, the threats, they weren't supposed to preach about Jesus anymore. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By who? Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage, the nations rage, and the people's plot in vain? He's quoting here from Psalm chapter 2. So so the people here recognize that David wrote Psalm 2, and they recognize that David wrote Psalm 2 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has given us Psalm chapter 2, right? Which is true of all the Bible. Genesis to Revelation is all written by humans, human instrumentality, but God was breathing through them in the process so they were writing down exactly what God wanted them to write down. We call that the inspiration of Scripture. And because God was in the process, what was written down was perfect truth with no mixture of error. We call that the inerrancy of Scripture. And you just need to understand as your pastor, that is a hill I will die on. I believe the Bible is God's word with no error. From Genesis to Revelation, it is the perfect revelation of God to us. We should believe it. We should stand on it. We should preach it. We should teach it. We should live by it. It is the word of God. What a precious gift. Amen? And so, 
Back in Psalm 2, God the Holy Spirit, through David, is, is, is finishing up this psalm, saying, you need to turn to the Son, fear Him. So let me say it like this. The Spirit inspired David to write this psalm as a grave warning. As a grave warning. It's almost like the Spirit through David is saying this. Hey, here's how the world does things. They're not interested in God. They rebel against His authority. They've turned their back to Him. But don't be like those folks. Because if you're like those folks, it's going to turn out bad for you. And Psalm 2 is a warning about running in rebellion from God. He says there in verse 12, kiss the sun or pay homage to the sun is how that word, uh, the meaning of that word. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Turn to Jesus. Pay homage to him as your Lord and Savior. And if you don't, you're going to experience his wrath and his anger and you don't want to do that. And so, that's the outline. Okay, it's very interesting. God uh, the Father speaks after the world speaks, God the Son speaks, and God the Holy Spirit speaks. So, uh, if you have any questions, just jot this down, jot them down, and we'll answer them as soon as I'm done tonight. But I want to just give you some implications tonight, how this psalm applies to our lives. And because of all the, the uh, decorations, I can't even see the clock tonight, so I'm not in a hurry. It's going to be fine. Just kidding. I can kind of see it. Let's talk about the implications. Let's talk about the implications of this psalm for the Christian. First one, this psalm speaks to our confidence. This psalm speaks to our confidence. We should not cower into silence and irrelevance when opposed by the ungodly. We should not cower into silence and irrelevance when opposed by the ungodly. Why? Because when all is said and done, God wins. So, you understand that the temperature... Uh, let me say it like this, the heat is being turned up against Christians in our nation, right? And, and, and people that want to live in a way that is uh, unbiblical want to be able to do that without you telling them that it's wrong. And, and they really want everyone to approve of them. And, and what's, what's going to happen in the coming days is there going to be an, there's going to be an increasing price to pay for saying that certain things are sin because the Bible tells us they are sin. But that doesn't mean that we, we shut our mouths, right? Because, because we have the truth. And we know what God says. And we've got to stay by the book. Because we have the Bible, we can say, you know what? Uh, that choice, that decision, that lifestyle, that attitude, those actions, they're sinful. And those sins will send you to hell. And I know that because I'm a sinner too. And I deserve hell. But the Bible tells me that Jesus loves me. And because of my faith in him, I'm saved from my sin, forgiven of my sin, and have the hope and promise of heaven. So we, we can't back away from the Bible because if we back away from the Bible, we're backing away from the gospel, right? We can't do that because our world needs the gospel desperately. So just because it's unpopular to speak the truth of the word of God doesn't mean we should stop speaking the truth of the word of God. We should not cower into silence and irrelevance when opposed by the ungodly because God wins. And so next time you feel, in a, you feel like you're in a, um, a tough situation because of your faith, just remember that the Lord is sitting on his throne laughing. Right? He's in control. You don't have to cower. You can just serve God, live for the Lord, stand on his word, and God will take care of the rest. Amen?
God wins. Second thing, this psalm speaks to our convictions. Our convictions. By that I mean Jesus is the anointed Son of God, the Messiah, and the only hope for the world. It says there, the the kings of the earth, verse 2, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, against Jesus. Then in verse 6, as for me, God says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God has ordained that His Son, God the Father has ordained that His Son, Jesus Christ, is the way of salvation, the only hope for the world. And that is our conviction. Jesus is the anointed Son of God, the Messiah, the only hope for the world. And again, we can't back away from it because that truth, that reality, the exclusivity of Christ is getting more and more unpopular in our culture. But if we just stop talking about Jesus being the only way, then folks don't want to hear, hear the only way. And they can't be saved if they don't hear the gospel. So we can't back away from our convictions. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the only hope for the world. We've got to stand on what the Bible teaches about Jesus. Amen? This psalm also speaks to our commission. Our commission. In uh, Matthew 28, we're given the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. That's called the Great Commission, and it's about going to the nations with the gospel, making disciples, uh, so they can become followers of Christ and reach out to others themselves. Now, why is the Great Commission to go to the nations? Well, it goes back here to Psalm chapter 2. Every nation belongs to Jesus. Remember what he said? He said, ask, the Father says to the Son, ask, I'll give you the nations. They're yours. I'm going to give them to you as a gift. So every nation belongs to Jesus. And here's where we get to the root of what missions is all about. All right, We share the gospel so people can be redeemed Listen, and give Jesus the praise he deserves. We share the gospel all over the world so people can be redeemed and give Jesus the praise he deserves. Look over in Psalm 96. Let me kind of drive this point home. This is interesting. Psalm 96. Look in verse 2. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And so our job is to go to the nations and say, stop worshiping false gods. They're empty and they lead to destruction. There is a God. He's revealed himself in his word and through his son, Jesus Christ, Worship Him. He's the one that deserves your worship. Not these false gods, not these idols, but Jesus is the one that deserves your worship. So the reason we do missions is because we want to see Jesus get more worship. The the motivation for missions ought to be the glory of God. If if your only motivation for missions is just a sense of duty, then that that comes and goes, right? You have good days, bad days, good weeks, bad weeks, and some days you don't feel like doing your duty, right? 
right? Can we be honest? And uh, and you're just not in you're just not in that frame of mind, right? And and you have good weeks and bad weeks and days you're fired up and days your passion is waning. But if your motivation for missions is the glory of God, that'll keep your heart uh, in, in, inflamed with passion to see people who are far from God give Jesus the worship that He deserves. So we go places in this world that are predominantly Hindu cultures. And, and Jesus deserves worship from everyone that's worshiping these false Hindu gods, right? And, and we go places that are predominantly Buddhist. And Jesus deserves the worship that is being poured out on the idolatry called Buddhism, the false religion called Buddhism. There are people in our world that, are, that worship Allah and, and believe that Muhammad is the, the prophet of Allah, the true prophet of Allah, and, and they are... They are lost and in their sins. They need to know that the only way you can know the one true God is through Jesus Christ. And He's the one that deserves their worship. There are people in this world who are caught up in animism and, and, and spirit worship and, 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 and you know, tribal religions. And they need to understand that they were made by God. They were created by God and He longs for relationship with them through His Son, Jesus Christ, and He will be their peace. He will, he will put their fears to rest. He will give them hope. He will change their lives because He is the one true God. And we could go on and on and on and on. No matter where we go, Jesus deserves worship from every tribe and every tongue. So that's why we do missions. The nations are His, right? As we go out and share the gospel, God is giving the nations to His Son. Giving the worship of the nations to his son. So I hope that you are I hope that you are driven in your Christian life by the glory of God because that is a motivation that won't wax and wane. It will it will consume you and keep you moving forward in your Christian life. I pray all the time for my kids. I pray God, would you give them a passion for your glory? Give them a passion for your glory. They'd realize there's something bigger going on in the world than just their little corner of life. God, would you do something in their life so they understand it's not about them, it's about you. And that they would live their lives to make your name great. That's my prayer all the time for my kids and for myself. And so this psalm speaks of our commission, speaks to our commission. We do missions because God the Father is giving the nations to His Son. And every time someone hears the gospel and is saved, that's another part of the nations coming to Christ. Amen? Number four... This speaks of our consecration. Look back with me in Psalm 2. Psalm 2. I'm gonna, we're going to close out here in a few minutes, and then I'll take some questions if you have any. Psalm chapter 2. Look how he closes the psalm. You know, The world speaks, God the Father speaks, God the Son speaks. Look at the closing of the psalm. Now therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. So that's what he's calling us to, to to run to Jesus, to to stop running from God, but to run to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So this speaks of our consecration, our Christian lives, what what our lives ought to look like when we are in Christ. We are to fear the Son and love the Son. Fear the Son and love the Son. Notice what it says in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, a lot of people think that 
that reverence and joy are mutually exclusive. That you can't have joy and be reverential at the same time. And that is simply unbiblical. Christians ought to be people that have deep reverence and awe from God that is driven by this joy that we can know the God who we're in awe of. That makes sense? I mean, you understand that God is big and God is holy and God is sovereign and God is righteous and God is the creator and, and you don't deserve to know him or be in his presence, but because of Jesus, you can know him and call him Father and draw near to him. And so you have the joy that, hey, I know God in a personal way, but yet the fear that you know who God is. He's the one true God and you tremble in his presence. Fear and joy are not mutually exclusive. I like how Spurgeon says it. He says, holy fear must always be mixed with Christian joy. This sacred compound produces a sweet aroma. Burn no other on the altar. Fear without joy is torment. Joy without fear is presumption. So we need to have fear for, for the Son, live in fear of Him, reverence, awe, but we need to have great joy that we know Him in a personal way. And this fear should be accompanied by love. Look what it says in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. It's a sign of affection. Like you would kiss the, king, the, the hand of a king. It's a way to pay homage, to recognize the authority of a king over your life. So it says, kiss the son, pay homage to the son, recognize his authority over you. Love him instead of loving any other way that this world makes available to you. This fear of Christ, this fear of God should be accompanied by love for him. We ought to serve him with fear. We ought to kiss him. That's what the Christian life ought to look like. We ought to be... Be consecrated. And so when people see our lives, they ought to see a deep respect for God, an abiding joy in the presence of God, and a fond affection for God. And when people see that awe and that joy and that affection, that's contagious. People start to say, I like like what they have. I want what they have, right? Um, I know I'm going to make people mad with this illustration, so just bear with me, all right? Um, uh, but it, it really illustrates what fear, the fear of God looks like and what the love of Jesus looks like. Um, the, I, I watched the Super Bowl, and uh, after the Super Bowl was over, uh, I was interested in to see what Peyton Manning had to say, right? Peyton Manning, icon, great quarterback, Hall of Famer, well-respected. You know, how many Tennessee Vols we got in here? We got some... Vol fans in here? Okay, all right. Okay, we'll make you mad. Um, had my boys in the room. This you know, historic moment. One day you'll be able to tell your boys you were there when Peyton Manning played his last game. And, and uh, you know, just historic. And put microphones in his face. And, uh, and a few minutes later, I was having to explain to my nine-year-old what Budweiser is. Because here's what he said. I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not here to dog on Peyton Manning. He's a great player. And, you know, I, I respect the Manning family. But listen to me. Here's, here's, here's where our culture looks like when it comes to relating to God. He said to the reporter, I'm going to drink lots of Budweiser tonight. Now, there's speculation why he said that, you know, business purposes or whatever. But he said, I'm going to drink lots of Budweiser tonight, right? The next thought out of his mouth was, I want to thank the man upstairs. I want to thank the man upstairs. Now, listen to me. That's cultural Christianity. That's cultural Christianity. The hey, I can do whatever I want to do, live however I want to live. And, but hey, the man upstairs, he's got my back, right? 
I'm going to thank the man upstairs for what he's done for me. That doesn't sound like fearing the Son, deep reverence for Him, joy, loving Him. And, and, and so I thought, my, my thought was, okay, whatever, Peyton Manning, he, whatever. That's his business, whatever, that's what he's doing. Um, but my, my concern was, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of good old guys and good old gals watching that, and they think, that's Christianity. I can live however I want to live, and the man upstairs got my back, and uh, as long as I you know, kind of tip my hat to him every now and then, that's Christianity. That is not Christianity. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's Christianity, where you love Jesus, and you want to honor him with your life, and you have deep reverence for him, and you live in, in, in deep joy because of your relationship with him, and you love him with all of your heart, all of your soul. All, that, that's Christianity, right? Not this cultural stuff that says, hey, do what you want, and you know, God will kind of wink at your sin, and it's all okay. And I'm not picking on Peyton Manning. He's just, he's just, he's just repeating what a, a cultural Christianity has been saying for, for decades. And listen to me, that brand of Christianity won't get you to heaven. You hear me? Tipping your hat to God. It's, hey, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm following him. He has changed my life. I love him. I respect him. I want to live for his glory. That's what the Christian life looks like. It's consecrated. So this psalm, and if I made you mad, I'm sorry, okay? Um, I under, you don't have to send me an email. I know that Florida State players do bad things too, okay? I got you. All right? I got you. A lot of guys need to get saved. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, Florida State was having a lot of off-the-field issues. I don't know if you remember that or not. And I talked to John Ingstrom, our FCA guy at you know fellowship of christian athletes i said listen you need to call your florida state counterpart and, and he needs to get on these guys with the gospel all right because because uh because things are not going good down there in tallahassee so i understand all the teams got their issues and, but I, I think that was just a cultural that the super Bowl, i think that was just a cultural moment to reveal what a lot of people think christianity is and that's just not christianity is it listen to me being a good old guy ain't gonna get you to heaven because there's no such thing as a good old guy we're all sinners who need salvation in Jesus. Amen? All right, good deal. So if I offended you, I'm sorry. Um, it'll be okay. All right, okay, good deal. Um, so this speaks of our consecration, and, uh, and, and we, need to, uh, we need to take note of that.